Book One, Chapter Three, Sections Four and Five of The Food of the Gods and How It Came to Earth by H. G. Wells. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Catherine Eastman. Four. By five o'clock that evening, this amazing cosser, with no appearance of hurry at all, had got all the stuff for his fight with insurgent bigness out of Urshot and on the road to Hickleybrow. Two barrels of paraffin and a load of dry brushwood he had bought in Urshot, plentiful sacks of sulphur, eight big game guns and ammunition, three light breech loaders with small shot ammunition for the wasps, a hatchet, two billhooks, a pick and three spades, two coils of rope, some bottled beer, soda, and whiskey, one gross of packets of rat poison, and cold provisions for three days had come down from London. All these things he had sent on in a coal trolley and a hay wagon, in the most businesslike way, except the guns and ammunition, which were stuck under the seat of the Red Lion wagonette, appointed to bring on Redwood, and the five picked men who had come up from Ealing at Cosser's summons. Cosser conducted all these transactions with an invincible air of commonplace, in spite of the fact that Urshot was in a panic about the rats, and all the drivers had to be specially paid. All the shops were shut in the place, and scarcely a soul abroad in the street, and when he banged at a door, a window was apt to open. He seemed to consider that the conduct of business from open windows was an entirely legitimate and obvious method. Finally, he and Bensington got the Red Lion dog-cart, and set off with a wagonette to overtake the baggage. They did this a little beyond the crossroads, and so reached Hickleybrow first. Bensington, with a gun between his knees, sitting beside Cosser and the dog-cart, developed a long-germinated amazement. All they were doing was, no doubt, as Cosser insisted, quite the obvious thing to do, only— In England, one so rarely does the obvious thing. He glanced from his neighbor's feet to the boldly sketched hands upon the reins. Cosser had apparently never driven before— and he was keeping the line of least resistance down the middle of the road, by some no doubt quite obvious, but certainly unusual, light of his own. "'Why don't we all do the obvious?' thought Bensington. "'How the world would travel if one did! I wonder, for instance, why I don't do such a lot of things I know would be all right to do, things I want to do. Is everybody like that, or is it peculiar to me?' He plunged into obscure speculation about the will. He thought of the complex, organized futilities of the daily life, and in contrast with them, the plain and manifest things to do, the sweet and splendid things to do, that some incredible influences will never permit us to do. Cousin Jane? Cousin Jane, he perceived, was important in the question, in some subtle and difficult way. Why should we, after all, eat, drink, and sleep, remain unmarried, go here, abstain from going there, all out of deference to Cousin Jane? She became symbolical without ceasing to be incomprehensible. A stile and a path across the fields caught his eye, and reminded him of that other bright day, so recent in time, so remote in its emotions, when he had walked from Urshot to the experimental farm to see the giant chicks. Fate plays with us. Chuck, chuck, said Cosser. Get up. It was a hot midday afternoon, not a breath of wind, 
and the dust was thick in the roads. Few people were about, but the deer beyond the park palings browsed in profound tranquility. They saw a couple of big wasps stripping a gooseberry bush just outside Hickleybrow, and another was crawling up and down the front of the little grocer's shop in the village street, trying to find an entry. The grocer was dimly visible within, with an ancient fowling piece in hand, watching its endeavors. The driver of the wagonette pulled up outside the jolly drovers and informed Redwood that his part of the bargain was done. In this contention he was presently joined by the drivers of the wagon and the trolley. Not only did they maintain this, but they refused to let the horses be taken further. "'Them big rats is nuts on horses,' the trolley driver kept on repeating. Cosser surveyed the controversy for a moment. "'Get the things out of that wagonette,' he said, and one of his men, a tall, fair, dirty engineer, obeyed. "'Give me that shotgun,' said Cosser. He placed himself between the drivers. "'We don't want you to drive,' he said. "'You can say what you like,' he conceded, "'but we want these horses.' They began to argue, but he continued speaking. "'If you try and assault us, I shall, in self-defense, let fly at your legs. The horses are going on.' He treated the incident as closed. "'Get up on that wagon, Flack,' he said to a thick-set, wiry little man. "'Boone, take the trolley.' The two drivers blustered to Redwood. "'You've done your duty to your employers,' said Redwood. You stop in this village until we come back. No one will blame you, seeing we've got guns. We've no wish to do anything unjust or violent, but this occasion is pressing. I'll pay if anything happens to the horses, never fear. That's all right, said Cosser, who rarely promised. They left the wagonette behind, and the men who were not driving went afoot. Over each shoulder sloped a gun. It was the oddest little expedition for an English country road, more like a Yankee party trekking west in the good old Indian days. They went up the road, until at the crest by the stile they came into sight of the experimental farm. They found a little group of men there with a gun or so, the two vultures were among them, and one man, a stranger from Medston, stood out before the others and watched the place through an opera glass. These men turned about and stared at Redwood's party. "'Anything fresh?' said Cosser. "'The wasps keeps a-comin' and a-goin,' said old Folger. "'Can't see as they bring anything.' "'The canary creepers got in among the pine trees now,' said the man with the lorgnette. "'It wasn't there this morning. You can see it grow while you watch it.' He took out a handkerchief and wiped his object glasses with careful deliberation. "'I reckon you're goin' down there.' ventured Skelmersdale. "'Will you come?' said Cosser. Skelmersdale seemed to hesitate. "'It's an all-night job.' Skelmersdale decided that he wouldn't. "'Rats about?' asked Cosser. "'One was up in the pines this morning. Rabbitin', we reckon.' Cosser slouched on to overtake his party. Bensington, regarding the experimental farm under his hand, was able to gauge now the vigor of the food. His first impression was that the house was smaller than he had thought, very much smaller. His second was to perceive that all the vegetation between the house and the pine wood had become extremely large. 
The roof over the well peeped amidst tussocks of grass a good eight feet high, and the canary creeper wrapped about the chimney-stack and gesticulated with stiff tendrils towards the heavens. Its flowers were vivid yellow splashes, distinctly visible as separate specks this mile away. A great green cable had writhed across the big wire enclosures of the giant hen's run, and flung twining leaf-stems about two outstanding pines. Fully half as tall as these was the grove of nettles running round behind the cart-shed. The whole prospect, as they drew nearer, became more and more suggestive of a raid of pygmies upon a doll's house that has been left in a neglected corner of some great garden. There was a busy coming and going from the wasp's nest, they saw. A swarm of black shapes interlaced in the air above the rusty hill-front beyond the pine-cluster, and ever and again one of these would dart up into the sky with incredible swiftness and soar off upon some distant quest. Their humming became audible at more than half a mile's distance from the experimental farm. Once a yellow-striped monster dropped towards them and hung for a space, watching them with its great compound eyes, but at an ineffectual shot from Kosser it darted off again. Down in a corner of the field, away to the right, several were crawling about over some ragged bones that were probably the remains of the lamb the rats had brought from Huxter's farm. The horses became very restless as they drew near these creatures. None of the party was an expert driver, and they had to put a man to lead each horse and encourage it with a voice. They could see nothing of the rats as they came up to the house, and everything seemed perfectly still except for the rising and falling of the wasp's nest. They led the horses into the yard, and one of Cosser's men, seeing the door open, the whole of the middle portion of the door had been gnawed out, walked into the house. Nobody missed him for the time, the rest being occupied with the barrels of paraffin, and the first intimation they had of his separation from them was the report of his gun and the whiz of his bullet. Bang! Bang! Both barrels! And his first bullet, it seems, went through the cask of sulphur, smashed out a stave from the further side, and filled the air with yellow dust. Redwood had kept his gun in hand, and let fly at something gray that leapt past him. He had a vision of the broad hindquarters, the long scaly tail and long soles of the hind feet of a rat, and fired his second barrel. He saw Bensington drop as the beast vanished round the corner. Then for a time everybody was busy with a gun. For three minutes lives were cheap at the experimental farm, and the banging of guns filled the air. Redwood, careless of Bensington in his excitement, rushed in pursuit, and was knocked headlong by a mass of brick fragments, mortar, plaster, and rotten lath splinters that came flying out at him as a bullet whacked through the wall. He found himself sitting on the ground with blood on his hands and lips, and a great stillness brooded over all about him. Then a flattish voice from within the house remarked, "'Gee whiz!' "'Hello?' said Redwood. "'Hello there,' answered the voice. And then, "'Did you chaps get him?' A sense of the duties of friendship returned to Redwood. "'Is Mr. Bensington hurt?' he said. The man inside heard imperfectly. "'No one ain't to blame if I ain't,' said the voice inside. It became clearer to Redwood that he must have shot Bensington. He forgot the cuts upon his face, 
arose, and came back to find Bensington seated on the ground and rubbing his shoulder. Bensington looked over his glasses. "'We peppered him, Redwood,' he said, and then, "'He tried to jump over me and knocked me down, but I let him have it with both barrels, and, my, how it has hurt my shoulder to be sure!' A man appeared in the doorway. "'I got him once in the chest and once in the side,' he said. "'Where's the wagons?' said Cosser, appearing amidst a thicket of gigantic canary-creeper leaves. It became evident, to Redwood's amazement, first, that no one had been shot, and secondly, that the trolley and wagon had shifted fifty yards, and were now standing with interlocked wheels amidst the tangled distortions of Skinner's kitchen garden. The horses had stopped their plunging. Halfway towards them, the burst barrel of sulphur lay in the path with a cloud of sulphur dust above it. He indicated this to Cosser, and walked towards it. "'Has anyone seen that rat?' shouted Cosser, following. "'I got him in between the ribs once, and once in the face as he turned on me.' They were joined by two men as they worried at the locked wheels. "'I killed that rat,' said one of the men. "'Have they got him?' asked Cosser. "'Jim Bates has found him beyond the hedge. I got him just as he came round the corner.' Whack! Behind the shoulder. When things were a little ship-shape again, Redwood went and stared at the huge, misshapen corpse. The brute lay on its side, with its body slightly bent. Its rodent teeth overhanging its receding lower jaw gave its face a look of colossal feebleness, of weak avidity. It seemed not in the least ferocious or terrible. Its forepaws reminded him of lank, emaciated hands except for one neat round hole with a scorched rim on either side of its neck, the creature was absolutely intact. He meditated over this fact for some time. "'There must have been two rats,' he said at last, turning away. "'Yes, and the one that everybody hit got away.' "'I am certain that my own shot—' A canary creeper leaf tendril, engaged in that mysterious search for a holdfast which constitutes a tendril's career, bent itself engagingly towards his neck and made him step aside hastily. Whoozzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzzz
that drew them up into a line together. "'I hope they'll come out,' said Redwood, with a glance at the penthouse of the well. "'If they don't,' reflected Bensington. "'They will,' said Redwood. They meditated. "'We shall have to rig up some sort of flare if we do go in,' said Redwood. They went up a little path of white sand through the pine wood, and halted presently within sight of the wasp holes. The sun was setting now, and the wasps were coming home for good. Their wings in the golden light made twirling halos about them. The three men peered out from under the trees, they did not care to go right to the edge of the wood, and watched these tremendous insects drop and crawl for a little, and enter and disappear. "'They will be still in a couple of hours from now,' said Redwood. "'This is like being a boy again.' "'We can't miss those holes,' said Bensington, "'even if the night is dark. "'By the by, about the light?' "'Full moon,' said the electrician. "'I looked it up.' They went back and consulted with Cosser. He said that, obviously— they must get the sulphur, nitre, and plaster of Paris through the wood before twilight, and for that they broke bulk and carried the sacks. After the necessary shouting of the preliminary directions, never a word was spoken, and as the buzzing of the wasp's nest died away, there was scarcely a sound in the world but the noise of footsteps, the heavy breathing of burdened men, and the thud of the sacks. They all took turns at that labor, except Mr. Bensington, who was manifestly unfit. He took post in the Skinner's bedroom with a rifle, to watch the carcass of the dead rat, and of the others they took turns to rest from sack-carrying, and to keep watch two at a time upon the rat-holes behind the nettle-grove. The pollen-sacks of the nettles were ripe, and every now and then the vigil would be enlivened by the dehiscence of these— the bursting of the sacks sounding exactly like the crack of a pistol, and the pollen grains as big as buckshot pattered all about them. Mr. Bensington sat at his window on a hard, horsehair-stuffed armchair, covered by a grubby antimacassar that had given a touch of social distinction to the Skinner's sitting-room for many years. His unaccustomed rifle rested on the sill, and his spectacles anon watched the dark bulk of the dead rat in the thickening twilight, Anon wandered about him in curious meditation. There was a faint smell of paraffin without, for one of the casks leaked, and it mingled with a less unpleasant odor arising from the hacked and crushed creeper. Within, when he turned his head, a blend of faint domestic scents—beer, cheese, rotten apples, and old boots as the leading motifs—was full of reminiscences of the vanished Skinners. He regarded the dim room for a space— the furniture had been greatly disordered, perhaps by some inquisitive rat, but a coat upon a clothes-peg on the door, a razor and some dirty scraps of paper, and a piece of soap that had hardened through years of disuse into a horny cube, were redolent of Skinner's distinctive personality. It came to Bensington's mind with a complete novelty of realization that in all probability the man had been killed and eaten, at least in part, by the monster that now lay dead there in the darkling. To think of all that a harmless-looking discovery in chemistry may lead to! Here he was, in homely England, and yet in infinite danger, sitting out alone with a gun in a twilight-ruined house, remote from every comfort, 
his shoulder dreadfully bruised from a gun-kick, and— By Jove! He grasped now how profoundly the order of the universe had changed for him. He had come right away to this amazing experience without even saying a word to his cousin Jane. What must she be thinking of him? He tried to imagine it, and he could not. He had an extraordinary feeling that she and he were parted forever and would never meet again. He felt he had taken a step and come into a world of new immensities. What other monsters might not those deepening shadows hide? The tips of the giant nettles came out sharp and black against the pale green and amber of the western sky. Everything was very still, very still indeed. He wondered why he could not hear the others away there around the corner of the house. The shadow in the cart-shed was now an abysmal black. Bang! 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 A sequence of echoes and a shout. A long silence. Bang! And a diminuendo of echoes. Stillness. Then, thank goodness, Redwood and Cosser were coming out of the inaudible darknesses, and Redwood was calling, Bensington! Bensington, we've bagged another of the rats! Cosser's bagged another of the rats! End of chapter 3, sections 4 and 5